Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. When you check out the YouTube page of the Hartford-based artist and poet, Suli Nett, you'll hear this refrain. My name is Suli Nett, and you may call me Suli Nett. Join us around a fire in my backyard as we talk about the power of names. My name wasn't meant to be said by lazy tongues. My name is a three-syllable acrobatic feat that determines whether or not I can begin to trust you. And hear readings from her latest book of poetry called Seeing in the Dark. I am bored with the word humble. Humble is a weaponized virtue that shatters against women who have become titanium confidence, who will no longer allow you to steal away, package, and try to sell us back our self-worth. Humble is a failed attempt to silence, to stifle, to shut down, to dim. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and I gotta be upfront with you here. When I first encountered the Hartford-based artist and poet, Suli Nett, I was intimidated wasn't exactly the right word because there wasn't a feeling of power imbalance, but I definitely felt a feeling of awe. She walks like she's been wherever she is, a thousand times before. Her poetry, especially when spoken out loud, grabs you by the throat and holds on. It sticks with you. Her art is bold and bright and playful, and her interest in death, social dynamics, race, and gender is compelling. Now, I already have a well-worn copy of her first book, Building a Powerhouse, which was released in 2017. And when she had a launch party recently for her latest book of poetry called Seeing in the Dark, I thought of about a thousand things I wanted to talk with her about. So after she signed my copy, I blurted out, Suli Ned! By the way, her name starts with a Z, so you may want to call her Zuli Ned, but it's pronounced with an S, Suli Ned. But we'll get to the power of names a little bit later. I blurted out, Suli Ned, how about you come over to my house and sit around a fire and I can interview you about everything? Not even a week later, here we are. Sulinette, thanks for hanging out with me by the fire. Oh, I'm excited. I love a good fire in all forms. <laughs> yes, you do. I know this to be true. So let's start with, uh, you've got two books. Uh, you just came out with Seeing in the Dark this year, 2022, and you came out with Building a Powerhouse in 2017. How did you change as a poet between the release date of those two books? both times for building a powerhouse and seeing in the dark, the process is just, it can be super icky. It can be a lot of dredging up some things that I didn't even realize were connected to some of the poems. It could be revisiting places that sometimes don't feel great, but in going through building a powerhouse and going through Seeing in the dark, there's been a lot of transformation in terms of a real reclamation of joy, a sense of acceptance of who I am and where I'm at and where I come from. In seeing in the dark, there's even more leaning into vulnerability for myself, which to me, vulnerability and bravery are the exact same thing. So there's been a whole lot more bravery with seeing in the dark than there was for building a powerhouse for me. I think building a powerhouse, I was like, what are my popular poems? What are some things that like, maybe I really wanna get out right now? What are, what are some poems that have kind of been laying around that just need some life to them? And how can I put these together? Because I, I want to do this. I want to give this a shot. I want to put my work out there in a way that I've never done before. But seeing in the dark was a much more slow burn I, I was able to unburden myself and focus on the things that really make me who I am and focus on the things that I want to share with other people, the important things. Um, 
And so seeing in the dark came about in a in a different way. Originally, I was going to, like many people, release the book in 2020. <laughs> Walls. Hilarious. Oh, so much was going to happen in 2020. 2020 was going to be my year. Um, how many of us said that? <laughs> it was your year, all right. Your year for something else. But I didn't know that the idea for Seeing in the Dark was being planted in 2020. Because 2020 was also the year that I went back to Puerto Rico after not having been for seven years maybe a decade and if you've ever been to puerto rico not on this visit but a visit prior i had gone to visit caves that are there and there are petroglyphs that are carved into the caves and one of them is an owl and something that really helped me through 2020 and beyond was this mantra of i can see in the dark and for a long time i have dreamt with owls, they visit me in my dreams. Uh, when I visited the caves, that petroglyph stood out to me. And then that mantra was coming to me and I'm like, okay, all of these things are coming together. And I got that owl petroglyph tattooed on my wrist as a reminder for that, that with everything that's happening in the world, with the hardships that I go through, with healing, with therapy, with my relationships, I can see my way through the dark, but I can also see while I'm in it. So not just the darkness, but like the light that is in there, because there is light in there. There are things to be seen. I just need to adjust my vision. So on the cover of the book is an owl, uh, and it looks like it has the universe in its eyes. Yes. Will you tell me about that? If anybody, which you all should be by now, uh, checks out my artwork. <laughs> <laughs> I have for years now painted many a paintings with the galaxy as a background. For me, it represents expansion. It represents oneness. It represents wholeness. It represents a connection to something bigger than, than ourselves. It makes me feel small when I think about it. We are a rock that's just floating in outer space, which also encourages me to think about how we can like get our together because we have to. This is our little floating rock and we're in this together. And so I, I wanted to, to honor my love of that uh, within this image of the owl, um, because to me, the owl is representative of, of wisdom, again, of being able to see in the dark and being able to move through that. And when I think about our galaxy, when I think about the universe, its natural state is darkness. And so I wanted to honor that with the title and with the image that's on the book. Tarot is a big component of how this book is organized. I'd love to hear why tarot and uh, will you lay out how it's organized? Tarot has been super helpful for me in the last like couple of years. I try to edit my rituals to see what works for me and when it's working for me. And I've tried having stones. I've tried collecting candles. I've tried all sorts of different things, but tarot has been particularly helpful for me. It's not just something that popped up in this book, but I'm realizing this like right now in this moment that I mentioned tarot as well in building a powerhouse. A tarot card helped me to uh, leave my job. I was uh, unhappy with this place that I was working at full time. And uh, I had a good friend there named Kathy. Hi, Kathy. We were having lunch outside. She brought a deck of tarot cards because she's my little witchy friend among almost all of my witchy friends. <laughs> And I was, yet again, complaining about how I was feeling and I'm unhappy. And I'm like, I just need the universe to stop giving me these random signs. Like, here's a walnut. I'm like, I don't know what to do if you give me a walnut. Yeah, what do I do with a walnut? And in that very moment, a card got caught in the wind off the top of the deck and flew and landed right on my crotch. <laughs> and I picked it up. And if you know anything about tarot cards, uh, you know that there are million, billion, trillion different designs. Um, and when I flipped this one over, it was the eight of pentacles, so coins. And in the center of it was a woman who was painting the last pentacle. Damn. Yeah. I freaked out. Yeah. And also I was like, okay, I kind of took it as a hint. I didn't jump all the way to be very transparent with y'all. 
But I did run in immediately and said to my executive director, I was like, I need you to cut my time to half right now, from full time to half. So I was like, I need to give my energy to something else. I'm being told directly this time. There's <laughs> no <get>. ambiguity. <laughs> right. No, that card landed where it needed to to get my attention. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I need to I need to change this. And then with seeing in the dark, I really relied on tarot as a way to speak to what I call my people, which are my ancestors, the people that came before me. I like to try to tap into that energy and be in conversation with them. And then after that, pulling cards to gain clarity around whatever messaging I'm getting. And it's been super helpful for me. And when I think about the cards that, that I pulled the most, that came up for me the most, or that were the most helpful, there was the hermit, there was the death card, which I also nicknamed the death dealer in there because that has to do with a little bit of death, the show, and the magician. So there's these different energies of the hermit being going inside, be, uh, getting in touch with your intuition. There's the death card, which is about transformation. And then there's the magician who takes what was there or takes this new energy and makes it into something else. What are you creating? What are you alchemizing? Um, and I have long loved the word, the idea, um, and the identity of being an alchemist in my, in my artwork, whatever that may be, if it's poetry, if it's performance, if it's speaking with people. Yeah. Uh, meditation is something that I discovered. It's funny because I think you only really discover meditation for yourself when you need it. You know, if life mm. is easy and things are breeze, <laughs> what do you need meditation for? But um, in the last year for me, I've, I've discovered meditation and, and how important it is breathing and using breathing to come to now. Uh, because when you're going through hard stuff, it's so tempting to think about what just happened and imagine these awful things and then to worry about the future. Yeah. And so as I've been learning about meditation and finding my own groove and finding my own way to practice it, um, of when I read your first poem of the whole book, uh, Lucid Dreaming, mm. it, it stuck in my mental craw ever since I read it uh, because of the imagery in it. So I'd love if you would read Lucid Dreaming. Sure. When we lived in Florida, we would go to the beach and when I wasn't trying to ride a wave, prove that I couldn't get swept away by the undercurrent or attempt to control the ocean with my mind, I would lay between the sand and forever, listening. One night, as I closed my eyes, I imagined my breathing to be the sound of the sea, ocean water crashing in and smoothly pulling out. It was the first time I can remember lucid dreaming. I was above the water, in the water, in between the sand and forever. I was all of it, if I was listening. Since leaving, we speak less often. When we reconvene, it often involves me being very human and trying to compare the river from my eyes to the galaxy before me. I always feel small and inspired. I believe I can't lie if I'm in a body of water. The truth will just flow out of me if I listen. Someone I really love once said to me, you know, you can tell the ocean anything, but it has to be true. Wow. And I love imagining myself breathing as that ocean and speaking only the truth. And uh, so thanks for plugging that in for me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for sharing that with me. <laughs> there are scattered throughout this book these little tiny pieces and they go like blank in less than so many words. Mm. So, so the first one of the book is a tragedy in less than two words, remembering. Mm. That hit hard for me. Yeah. That tiny, tiny poem. Will you talk about how remembering can be tragic? Oftentimes I know that I can go to a place where remembering is just super harmful for me. I think in particular because I'm an artist and because I'm so visually inclined, I can easily reimagine really hurtful things, really harmful things, really heavy things. And also with these pieces that are, that are these, these really short pieces, I liked playing with the idea of something that huge, like remembering 
you can remember so much and brevity it's like hitting the nail right on mm. right on the head i wanted to play with that because sometimes i know for me if i listen to a, a certain song or i or i hear my friends speaking my brilliant brilliant friends and the way that they use their words sometimes someone will say something that just makes you go oof because of the honesty of it or the truth of it or because of how laser focused they are on the emotion on the experience on the moment and so that's what those pieces are for me it's like if i just capture that moment of like oof ouch oh <laughs> yeah. yeah you mentioned a song one of the one of the little pieces is a tragedy in less than eight words i can't listen to that song anymore that's the worst what song is it that's probably that you're talking about sulinette uh hold on let's uh let's reverse the repression um <laughs> <laughs> and see now i wonder is that uh, should i have asked you that uh, yes yes because why not it's my truth ruthie b dandelions yeah it was a song that meant a lot to me at one point uh, someone had dedicated that song to me and it, in a way it became like our song and uh, yeah now I can't uh, even like think about it without getting sad because I'm remembering um, so I can't listen to that song anymore it brings up a lot of sadness uh, it brings up mostly agitation <laughs> anger uh, resentment um, and sometimes I can work through those things, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to sit there and listen to the lyrics of a song that reminds me of a place I no longer want to be in and that I no longer occupy happily. That's not the kind of masochism you're into. No, there is some, but that's not <laughs> it. <laughs> that ain't the one. <laughs> when we get back, what's in a name? I am not sorry that my name isn't slathered in mayonnaise. Mi nombre es un caldero viejo de sabor, un paquete de sazón, un poco de adobo y un poquitito de sofrito. Let the flavor of it suffocate you. I get it. You're not used to seasonings. More from my fireside conversation with poet and artist Suli Net. I'm Kayone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf, and today you are so lucky because you're in my backyard with me, a roaring fire, and Suli Net. She's a Hartford-based social worker, artist, and poet, and she just released her latest book of poetry called Seeing in the Dark. Let's get back to our conversation. I've got to have you read, I don't even like pie like that. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Possibly, at least to date, the most controversial poem name I have in here. <laughs> you have a friend in me. You have a friend in me with this. I don't like pie like that either, but there's more to it than that. Uh, to anybody that's listening that does enjoy pie, just know I believe that you like pie. And you know what? More for you. Exactly. You can have Sulina's Enjoy. Pie. I will give you my pie. You don't even have to give yep. me anything in return. Just I am happy to see you enjoy your pie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Humble is a pebble thrown at women who are mountains. Humble is a word yelled at a tornado a verbal corset here to cinch us in and try to capture the wind. 
I am bored with the word humble. Humble is a weaponized virtue that shatters against women who have become titanium confidence, who will no longer allow you to steal away, package, and try to sell us back our self-worth. Humble is a failed attempt to silence, to stifle, to shut down, to dim. You need to humble yourself. A slice of humble pie, anyone? For what? To choke on? To wash down with a side of ladylike and acting likable with a side of be nice? May my cockiness crow over your mornings of what we should be. How dare you tell the sun to not rise, to not shine? How dare you try to stunt the growth of an Eden? Humble is a well-meaning bullet aimed at femme brilliance. Humble does not exist on this menu. You can take that slice of humble pie and stuff it. Uh. <laughs> it's the uh for me. <laughs> Oh, Thank you. I um, always enjoy reading that poem in a room full of a lot of masculine presenting folks. Oh, that's another one. <laughs> Why do you think they react to it so much? I think a lot of folks, I think regardless of gender identity or expression, I think a lot of folks react to that because humility is seen as such a, a wonderful virtue that a lot of folks have. But as I mentioned in the poem, I see it so often weaponized, particularly to femme folks and particularly to people who are told, believe in yourself, be confident, but not like that, Ugh. or only be confident to this point, or only be confident to this extent, or only be confident about these things. And then everything else, you should be questioning yourself, you should be doubting yourself, you should be asking a man for his help or to mansplain something you already know about or probably have degrees in. Uh, there's all of these situations, there's all of this conditioning that I've seen around particularly femme folks, just being able to, to be dope at what they do and, and having the audacity to say, I know me better than you know me. And so that poem sometimes makes folks really uncomfortable because they have to reconcile with their own relationship with humble and how they use it. Usually, again, it's to check someone and put them in a box and try to put them back in quote unquote their place. And um, I'm here to really f with that. And I'm here for the people that are also just like really confident. I love that. That is really <laughs> sexy. <laughs> so there are these writing prompts throughout the book. Yeah. And I filled every single one of them out. Yes. So I'm gonna flip it. I want you to choose one that I will read, that I wrote. So the ones that you offered were, choose an inanimate object in your space, write to it as though it is your sworn enemy, <laughs> <laughs> broken pieces or a collage waiting to happen, the tragedy of perfection, a love letter to the way I love. Which one would you like to hear me read? A love letter to the way I love. A love letter to the way I love. On first glance, it seems pedestrian, checking off boxes you'd find in a person. But oh, the release, impossible to rehearse, near constant relief, grief of life before being loved by me. <laughs> that makes my facilitator heart so happy. Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to hear the first poem from part three of Seeing in the Dark. It's called Like the Ocean. Oh, like the Ocean is one of my favorites, honestly. Yeah? Yeah. If I told you I was like the ocean, how would you take that? Would I be something you experience from a safe shore? Something to explore? Wetness to drown in? Sinking to depth? with a satisfied smile on your face? Would I be something to fear? The darker parts, inspiring cautionary tales of why people should avoid a sea like me, even though no one has ever been able to hold their breath that long. If I told you I was like the ocean, would you paint me blue or green? A reflection of what is above me or a reminder of what is within me? Do you think of how I'm a liquid cemetery with no headstones? whose tides take the sands of time and over time turn them into mountains only to wear them down again. 
There is so much death here. To remind you of how small you are, do you see how I can mirror the sky, how I can reflect infinity back to itself and give you the chance to tread in it? If I told you I was like the ocean, would you deem me violent? Hands waving hello only to take away. Would you dub me rejuvenating with how often people have baptized themselves in me, claiming renewal, rebirth, while my waters remain unchanged but always moving? They take reincarnating dips in me. What do you make of the way I relentlessly recoil into myself, of the way my undercurrents stretch and pull and drag, devilishly quiet on the inside, making waves on the outside? If I told you I was like the ocean, would you know that I'm like the moon? that I'm rising tide and expansion, that I'm screams and cries, that I'm woman and depth, that I wane and low tide, that I possess shipwrecks and bottled messages, that I'm Bermuda Triangle and no coming back, that I'm salt and flesh, that I'm a body of water, that I'm like the ocean. Tell me why you love that poem so much. Ah, oh, cause it's such, it feels to me in words, how I feel when I look at pictures of the galaxy, when I paint the galaxy, that poem is like a heart song for me. And it feels very much like a self-acceptance poem, a hug to all the parts of me, the, the shipwrecked parts of me, the, the depth of the woman that I am, the, the waves that people can only see from the outside the simultaneous, like, let's go to the beach and have fun at the ocean. And also, oh my God, that's a tsunami. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it's, it's all the things that an ocean can be and the expansiveness of it is something that, that really moves me and that I identify with. So that poem just feels good because it feels like, like all of me in a piece. There's another poem from part three that I must hear you read. It's called My Name. <laughs> Good times. I'm actually going to read it. I have it memorized, but I'm going to read huh. it. <laughs> My name wasn't meant to be said by lazy tongues. My name is a three-syllable acrobatic feat that determines whether or not I can begin to trust you. If my name is something you can't speak, that means I don't f with you. Yes, it was made up by my mother, but plot twist Billy and Becky, all names are made up. <laughs> insulting my name by trying to alter it means you're insulting my mother and trust me, you don't want this problem. Does your name mean anything? It was bestowed upon me with the responsibility to give it a definition. My name will not be defined by your dictionaries. You will not bring English ships to the island of my identity to colonize it. Ugh, Sulinette. I don't even know what that means. No one knows what it means, but she's provocative. She gets the people going. My name <laughs> wasn't meant to be said by lazy tongues. It does not roll off the tongue easily to accommodate your fragility. It is gritty core Chicago brick, a heartbeat. My name is a vocabularic rebellion, a f you to English and to Spanish. Mi nombre es la luna y el sol y bomba y plena y capicú y café y la tierra de Borinquen. My name wasn't meant to be said by lazy tongues. It questions the roots of why some names are dubbed ugly, ghetto, difficult, while other names are dubbed more appropriate, more beautiful, more professional. Um, to whom exactly? Exactly. I am not sorry that my name isn't slathered in mayonnaise. Mi nombre es un caldero viejo de sabor, un paquete de sazón, un poco de adobo y un poquitito de sofrito. Let the flavor of it suffocate you. I get it. You're not used to seasonings. Mm. So allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Sulinette, and you may call me Sulinette. Sulinette. <laughs> oh, no, thank <wait>. you. Oh. <laughs> I am very accepting of either or. If you'd like to clap, snap, hand wave, it's all good. <laughs> do you write by hand? Do you do your type? I think if it's a rapid fire poem, meaning I'm like in the moment, I'm feeling it in the moment, the words are coming to me, I do that by hand. I can't type it. But even then, it's so frustrating because whether it is typing or, or writing by hand, sometimes it doesn't move as fast as the poem. 
<laughs> I can't get it out as fast as the poem is coming to me. But for the most part, if it's a rapid fire poem, if it's something that I'm like instantaneously inspired by something, moved by something, I'm fired up about something, I will write it by hand on whatever is available to me in front of me, uh, which has included my own hand. <laughs> <laughs> um, if not, if it's something that can simmer, if it's something that's just a couplet, uh, an idea, um, something that, that I know needs more time and for me to sit with it, then yes, I will absolutely type it out. Or if it's something that I know is done or done for now, I will type it up. I will take the time to type it up. And in that process, that oftentimes inspires more poetry. Yeah, it makes me wonder about that flow state that you get into. I know that, you know, sometimes you were just talking about how you're hit with an inspiration and it's like you're automatically in flow state as you enter the writing, right? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you start writing and you get into that flow state. What, what happens most often, would you say, when it comes to flow for you? Is it something that mm. is, is what begins the poem or is a, a result of having faced it? I think sometimes it depends on the medium that I'm using. So for poetry specifically, what happens when I get into flow, oh, it feels like there is no separation between my gut, my heart, my head, my soul, and my hand. It feels easy. There are poems that I've written out in five minutes that I still share, perform to this day. There's one called The Cover Up that's, it's in building a powerhouse and it's about my niece having told me that when she was seven years old that she felt ugly when she didn't have makeup on. She was seven. I was furious about it and so furious that when I picked at the time I was still with her so I was like talking to her about it and consoling her and you know reminding her that she's gorgeous inside out and always will be no matter what the world says but when I got my hand on a pen the poem just came immediately out of me and to this day that poem still makes me furious makes me furious that that situation had to exist in order for that poem to come to be. And also, I think it's a very important poem. So poems have come just like that in mere, in mere minutes where I'm just grabbing whatever is around me. I am in touch with the emotions that I'm feeling. I am doing word association in my brain without having to Google anything, which I'm super proud of sometimes. <laughs> And sometimes you got to go to dictionary.com. Yeah. That's okay. And that's okay. Rhymezone.com. <laughs> What's a synonym for? Yeah. <laughs> but I can feel when, when I'm about to either enter the zone and I definitely know when I'm getting out of it because then the world around me starts to come into focus again. And I can hear things again. And, oh, there are people in the room with me didn't even notice. <laughs> um, Can you do that poem that you talked about? Sure. I'm gonna need a breather after this sure. poem. Based on an actual conversation, my seven-year-old niece told me she feels ugly without makeup on. Why are you so defensive, Sulinette? Are you a lesbian? Is that why you're so overly protective of your female friends? Ready to jump down any man's throat, all just because he's being disrespectful? Come on, didn't you know? That's just the way it is. Things will never be the same. Like back when female deities were something that relate to me, something I could teach my niece. Matriarchy, worship little girl, is something that you are worthy of, but now? My seven-year-old niece told me she feels ugly without makeup on. Mothers walking down the streets, teenage girls walking down the street. Damn, baby, you sexy. Beep, beep. Always a bridesmaid, but never a bride. Scars, flaws, kinky hair, run and hide. Hide inside and dye your roots so that your roots die. Too black, too white, too fat, too light. Always wrong, never right, and never tell your story out loud. Just write it with a razor and let your wrists cry. My seven-year-old niece told me she feels ugly without makeup on. 
Even famous rappers and singers got grown women trying to be Barbie. These are lyrics sung by my little puffy-haired niece. These are lyrics memorized by my half-black, half-Puerto Rican niece. These are lyrics internalized by my never-gonna-be-an-upper-class, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, tanorexican Barbie niece. Peace by delusional peace. She is forced into an illusion, further into the confusion, like there's something that she needs to be proving, shouldering the weight of, this is a man's world. And look at what the f came from that. My seven-year-old niece told me she feels ugly without makeup on. When you are writing a piece, how often are you factoring in how it will sound coming out of your face? You know, like, are all of your poems candidates to be spoken? Must they all be spoken? No. They don't all have to be spoken. And not all of them are even shared. Some of them are very much for me. And that's okay. And I think that's something that, that's been enjoyable to decide for myself is what goes out there, what makes me feel like I am pushing myself to be brave, and also what, what is precious to me? What do I get to keep for myself at the end of the day? And not all of them need to be read out loud. I mean, they can be. I invite you to. But some of them are just meant to, like I mentioned earlier with the... the two-word poems or the three-word poems some of them are just meant to be an oof moment and then move through it so it really it really depends on the piece and when I'm writing it I don't think I'm ever thinking about how it'll sound out loud there are many things that I've written that I've gone back to that I did say out loud and I was like oh snap I didn't know I was going that hard <laughs> or like or going back to a piece and again having that moment of oof I didn't know because poetry helps me to remember. But I don't, I don't think about how it's gonna sound out loud while I'm writing it. I'm just allowing again that flow of, of that connection between my mind, my spirit, my heart and my hand and just letting it, letting it take me away if I'm in that flow state, which is, out, which is very different than like the editing state. <laughs> uh, for anybody out there that has edited anything. So I, I'm more concerned about whether or not this is capturing what I'm trying to capture, if it's expressing what I'm trying to express, if it's getting at the, the emotion and is it bringing me closer to the truth, to my truth. After the break. These poems, the experience of reading them, it, it reminds me of like the connection that I have to other human beings. It reminds me that there's, there's work to do and also that there's work that has already been done. More from Hartford-based poet, artist, social worker, and author of Seeing in the Dark, Suli Net. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast, In Absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. If you've never donated to this station before, that's okay. Public radio is available to everyone for free. But we do rely on listener support from those who are able to give. So join the community of supporters for Public Media Giving Days. And thanks. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and you're with me and Hartford-based poet Suli Nett, around a fire in my backyard. After her 2017 book of poetry called Building a Powerhouse, she took her time filling the pages of her most recent release, Seeing in the Dark. Back to the backyard. Lately, I've been thinking about how much to talk about the things that hurt. Mm. And I know poetry isn't always about hurt, but <laughs> uh, often it is. And 
there's this tension between, you know, talking about it in some ways as medicine, mm. you know, connecting with people and letting them know, like, I've been through this too, like, me too, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of utility in that, and that community really does help lift us all. And at the same time, sometimes when I talk about the stuff that hurts, I keep it alive, like, I keep feeding and watering the roots. And I haven't yet figured out that balance. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe I never will, and that's the joy of existing, is figuring out how you, you wobble through it. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder, when it comes to your own pain, how do you read these poems to me? When you read them, do you experience them all over again? Mm. Is that good for you? Like, I don't know what the question is, but how like do you hold that? I like where you're going that? with it, though. Yeah. Is it good for me? I'm gonna go with a yes and. I think it's good for me because poetry is something that won't leave me alone. I'm much more familiar now with what allows my soul to feel satisfied. And sometimes that satisfaction is moving through the grief. And also I know Speaking for me personally, um, compared to the folks around me, I have a different relationship with the idea or the metaphor of death. And so when it comes to poetry, I see it as, depending on what I'm writing about, it's a resting place for something. And I can use that as a sort of gravestone in a sense to like revisit, remember what it is that I learned and show such a depth of gratitude that I'm not there anymore. Or what it is that I learned from that. Or what it is that I can offer to somebody else because of what I went through, because of what I learned. Do the poems still impact me? Yeah, but I think that's partly because they're true. And there was a lot of love involved in any grief that I experienced. So I honor that as well, that there was love there, that they, there may still be love there. With the poem about my niece, like, that's one of my babies. And I was furious. She is now 16. And I read that poem and I still get furious because that's my baby. So is it good? I think we need to, as a society, be okay with grieving. And I don't think we're okay with grieving. I don't think we know how to collectively grieve. And even with joy, I don't think we know how to truly experience deep joy without it becoming something very plastic. These, these poems, the experience of reading them, it, it reminds me of like the connection that I have to other human beings. It reminds me that there's, there's work to do and also that there's work that has already been done, at least for me personally, and that this is my form. Well, one of, this is one of my forms of offering medicine to other people. This is me. F folks often think about, am I doing enough to like change the world? And I think, I think of it as a large tapestry and what I'm doing is pulling at the thread and everybody is pulling at a thread. And this is one of the ways that I pull at the thread. So is it good to read it? Yes, because my poetry I know is not just for me. Again, there are poems that I keep for myself, but for the most part, I love to share them. I love to be in community with other people with my poetry, with my art, and share those things because I know, I know what those things can do for me. And so it's an honor for me to have these things use me as a vessel so that I can offer them to other people. I feel like writing a poem for somebody or about somebody mm. is like one of the most profoundly beautiful ways to communicate to someone that they've done something to you. <laughs> I love how vague you left that question so far. <laughs> they did something. <laughs> for you <laughs> yes I have received poems only in the positive oh good 
as, <laughs> as far as I know, I would love to leave room for error, but as far as I know, I have only received poems in the positive. Although a part of me would be curious to hear a poem about the not so positive. <laughs> I don't know that I would love it, but I'm curious. See, to me, the idea of someone writing a poem for me is thrilling because that means they were thinking about me without me having to remind them to think about me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's about. It's the, it's the vulnerability in it. It's, it's not just the, the time, effort, energy, thoughtfulness that goes into the writing of it, but also they're presenting it to you. Mm. And that's really vulnerable. And for me, being a poet, to receive poetry, I think adds this extra layer of vulnerability when someone presents me with it. Uh, it's like folks when I tell them that I'm an artist and they immediately are like, I can't even draw a stick figure. Uh, please stop saying that. You probably can. You just haven't tried. There's like that extra, again, there's that extra layer of please like what I have to offer you. Um, you might do this as a career. You might do this as your work. But and I really, really appreciate that, that again, that extra layer of, of softness and tenderness and openness that comes with somebody writing poetry for me. Have I kept any of them? No, but that's beside the point. <laughs> I remember you telling me a while ago that every year you pick a color ah, of the yes. year. What, first of all, why do you do that? And what's the color of the year for 2022? I pick a color of the year. I started doing that uh, maybe five years ago. And it was to give me a sort of focus for what it is that I wanted to build in my life. I needed to know where my energy was going because I knew there were some things that I wanted to build and put into place so that I could make this sustainable because this is my work, this is my full time. And so I thought of something that would make sense for me and color makes sense to me because it evokes emotion, it evokes connection in terms of, uh, for me, it's color association. What do I think of when I look at this color? And so I want to say that the first year I did it, it was red because I thought, here I am. I'm jumping in full time. I'm doing the thing. It's very red of you. And I, yes. <laughs> it felt very red of me. It was, I want to say like the year of fire where I was I was just trying to do as much as I could. I was in total grind mode that year that I, that I first chose a color. Then it went to blue, which felt more calm, more deliberate. Then it went to green, which was like, okay, we have a pretty good foundation. Let's see, let's see growth now. How do I want these things that I've established to grow? And then it went to purple. And purple for me is a very spiritual and royal color. And I was like, okay, what, what are some of the things that I wanna leave behind? Because I, at first, was very much like, if I die, if anything happens to me, burn everything of mine, including the paintings. Because if y'all didn't like them when I was alive, you don't get to have them if I'm dead. So there, super petty. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's still in my living will right now. So. <laughs> But in 2022, the color has gone back to green because it's about once again, tending to the garden and growing things and making room to grow different things. What do I wanna grow? What are the things that feed me? As things would, if you're growing them in your own garden, in your own farm, what are the things that I can tend to that will feed me back instead of just dispersing my energy to wherever it needs to go? For me, I, I know that I have a limited amount of energy, but what I do give energy to, it can flourish. And so it's about focusing, it's about slow growth and appreciating slow growth because at the end of the day, I want it to nurture me back. So green. I'd love to know who you think should be next around this fire. I had lunch with this person earlier today, and they are my favorite poet. And their name is Andrew Dean Wright. Uh, he is 
an amazing poet. And I would be stoked if y'all spoke to one another, if y'all were in conversation with each other. He is a brilliant dude. <laughs> um, and he's so, he's so good with words. I am such a fan. So Andrew Dean Wright, absolutely 100%. That's my vote. The chimes agree. Sulinette, thank you for talking with me. Kayon, I appreciate you being. We'll have a link to Sulinette's work at ctpublic.org slash audacious. And hey, Andrew Dean Wright, how about you come over to my house, sit around a fire, and I can interview you about everything? This show is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severindi Martinez and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford with help from our interns, Anya Grandalski and Mira Raju at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows like the one where you heard 40 people, including Sulinette, talking about what's gotten under their skin in a whole show called Why You So Salty. You can hear how 20 people define forgiveness and what they all have in common and you can hear stories about women in history who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. You can hear them all wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for leaving that review on Apple Podcasts. That's how the unfeeling podcast machine knows to favor our show. Like this one, submitted by Taff Timms, as read by Jessica Severindi Martinez. Episodes of Audacious challenge me to rethink long-held ideas, attitudes, and opinions. Kayon's questions inform, examine, and help me understand the world outside my life. Thank you, Kayon, for inviting me to think outside my comfort zone and grow. That is so sweet. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kayon Wolf, or you can send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.